Greetings, Internet. I'm John Bailey, and on this week's episode, I review Warner Brothers' latest Tarzan adaptation, The Legend of Tarzan, Spielberg's first ever collaboration as a director with the Walt Disney Company, the BFG, and the latest installment of Bloomhouse's The Purge series, Election Year. Let's get started. There's a thousand men down there, 20,000 more on the way. We don't stand a chance. A normal man can do the impossible to save the woman he loves. My husband is no normal man. So yeah, how about that Tarzan fella? He's certainly an interesting cat. Okay, here's the thing. I was initially excited, and I came out of the movie, spoiler alert, kind of loving it. I really dug what Warner Brothers ultimately did. The thing about Tarzan is, he is a colonial creation. He was the product of author Edgar Rice Burroughs, who was part of a long-storied series of authors who tend to take a politically incorrect view of non-European cultures, let's say. Him, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, Rudyard Kipling, plus the numerous, numerous writings from across Europe and and in the Americas talking about how the savage, you know, how non-Caucasians were savages. I mean, apparently there's even a sequel to Mary Poppins that featured them going around the four points of the world. North was the Eskimos. East was the Mandarins. West was the Indians. No specification between dot or feather. And South was the... uh, I forget how they put it, but let's just say it wasn't exactly a, a... a proper term for the African tribes. So yeah, I mean, anything from that period of colonialism during the 18th century, and probably even before that, anything from Europe that tackled any of anything outside of Europe is going to be a tough subject. I mean, the I mean the discussion I got into with somebody on Twitter was the fact that Tarzan is the white savior. And what started it was she was sharing, I believe it was a she, you can't tell anymore online, but the person I was talking to was sharing comments from the IGN review of this movie. And because they had, you know, called out the fact that Tarzan is a white savior stereotype, you know, the kind of character that helps the uncivilized non-whites to solve their problems. You see that a lot in all kinds of stuff, not only just historical pieces like Tarzan or um, I'm trying to think what other like stuff from this time period that you would call out, but like Dances with Wolves kind of, because I mean it's you're featuring the white character helping out these helping out the non-whites who apparently couldn't do it without that white main character. I mean, there was the problem with The Last Samurai. It's a problem with so many movies. Like, 
even simple like inspirational movies like Freedom Riders or even Dangerous Minds that feature these white characters from you know more privileged uh, from a more privileged background going out and helping the inner city youths who are mostly people of color that's that's a very constant stereotype in Hollywood and IGN was calling them out on it and in the comment section it turned into a little white pride movement you know a bowel movement mostly but all these guys talking about how we shouldn't you know making the same complaints about how why is there a black history month why isn't there a white history month and it's I didn't want that to become part and parcel with this movie, honestly, because I have a bit more of a personal connection to the Tarzan character. You see, my grandfather, my papa, was a big fan of Tarzan. He, like my parents, grew up reading the books and watching those movies. The movies were new when my papa came out. They were pretty old by the time my parents were growing up. But they, this is, you know, they knew the Tarzan character as it was from the books. And I remember before, just before he died, because he died in 2001, and in 1999, Disney did their version of Tarzan, and he was not happy, because he was unrecognizable. And, I can, and once I found out about it, I totally saw why. I don't know if he'd like the TV series any better, but yeah, he was not happy with what Disney did with, his, with his, one of his favorite characters. And so coming in to see it, I'm not going to deny that I'm a bit biased because I wanted to see, I wanted to have that personal connection with my grandfather through this movie. And I saw it with my parents because they grew up seeing the character on screen in the old black and white movies where they had like actual animals on screen on like really bad looking sets. And we all dug it because it was the character they remember and i kind of and i kind of dug it as a pulpy like popcorn movie like something that i'm not going to it's like something i could turn something i could like not think about i won't say turn my brain off cuz that's terrible you should never turn your brain off but it's something i can enjoy without without trying to overthink it you know and unfor- and unfortunately being a white kid who grew up in the suburbs, I don't have that sort of, you know, I'm not, you you know, I have to go out of my way to look at it from the point of view of, let's say, a black kid who maybe never heard of Tarzan before coming to see this movie. And what happens is they do the, uh, they do the hook thing where Hook took Peter Pan and made him an adult like years later coming back to Neverland in this movie, Tarzan has gone back to London to take over his family's estate, and he's brought Jane with him. And while he's been there, the uh, Belgian king has been trying to make the Congo uh, colony profitable for him. And he call, and part of that is involving uh, Christoph Waltz's character as this Belgian... I guess, officer of the army. I'm not sure what exactly his role is, if he's just a politician or if he's some kind of military guy, but Christoph Waltz wants to, wants to be the governor in charge of, of the Congo, and he 
calls on this tribe who is led by Jimon Hansu who, to kind of make a deal. Jimon Hansu will give the Belgians access to some of these very valuable diamonds and the and Christoph Waltz will bring Jamon Hansu Tarzan. And so Tarzan is brought in and he comes along with a new character uh, based on an actual historical figure, Dr. George. Uh, I mean, this is based on an actual person from American history, George Washington Williams. And he's played by Samuel L. Jackson. And Samuel Jackson, I'm going to say, it, is the savior of this movie. This movie would be nowhere near as good without the energy and the and the humor of Samuel L. Jackson behind it. Otherwise, it would just be completely forgettable. So Tarzan is tricked back to coming to the Cong- back to the Congo as sort of like the definitive guide for the British crown to s- to know whether or not they should make a deal with the Belgian king. You know, if the Belgians are true, you know, if the, the, Tarzan is like the canary in the coal mine, making sure that. What the Bel- you know the Belgians are on the up and up before the British can invest in them, and he brings along Samuel Jackson and Margot Robbie as Jane, and then then Christoph Waltz kidnaps Jane, and it's up to Tarzan and Samuel L. Jackson to traverse across the Congo to find her and save her and stop the Belgians, and unfortunately involves a plot. That is based on actual history of that time of colonial Belgium, where they com- where while slavery was being abolished by most of the states, the Belgians were kind of upping the ante on slavery in the Congo, and it was a horrible, horrible mistreatment of the Congolese people, and Tarzan. This British nobleman, you know, the son of British noblemen raised in the wilds, is the one to help the different tribes of the Congo to overthrow the Belgians and free themselves. And that's what IGN was talking about. And that's what IGN kind of had the contention with. And I completely see where they're coming from. They had, you know, that's a legitimate criticism. And the problem is, that's a criticism of the character because I'm going to say that right now that's that's part and parcel of the Tarzan character is that Edgar Rice Burroughs created this white guy for white readers to identify with and he it's up to the white guy to tame the wilds of Africa that was the whole point of the character at the time and nobody really thought about it because they were just thinking oh it's cool that this guy was raised in the wild and is like the master of everything they didn't that nobody really thought about, you know, the you know the racial implications of this guy who was in charge of all the African animals and and you know kind of the one and you know who kind of takes charge over these different tribes and it was and I mean I will say this the depiction of the different tribes from either from the ones that raised that were that ra- helped raise Jane Foster who they acknowledge, at least partly, is from Baltimore, although Margot Robbie kind of goes in and out of accents. But the tribe that is the closest to Tarzan and Jane, and the one that Jamon Hansu 
is the leader of, you know, the, their depictions are way, way more even-handed than what you would get in any previous depictions of Tarzan. So they've got that, you know, which is like almost a backhanded compliment because, yeah, that, that's what happens when you get white guys in charge. And this has been directed by David Yates, the guy who directed the last bunch of Harry Potter movies. And he's directing the one coming out in November about Newt Scamander. And the two main writers, one last movie was... Jack Ryan, Shadow Recruit with Chris Pine and Kenneth Branagh. And the other is known for hmm, Black Snake Moan, Hustle and F- director of Hustle and Flow, director of Black Snake Moan. He's a white guy, but he's he seems to have a lot more like like he, like he directed the pilot of Terriers, but he also directed the Footloose remake. He's doing a TV movie version of Urban Cowboy. He directed an episode of Empire. So, I mean, he's... The guy's got a history of working with with black characters and with, you know, with black actors. But it's still a white... But he's still a white guy. I don't know his history. His name is Craig Brewer. But... Yeah, once, but once again, you got two white guys writing... One with no experience, one with some, exp- and one with some experience with telling, ca- you know, telling stories with black characters and black actors, and then the director of the Harry Potter of the majority of the Harry Potter series, and it would probably been in Warner Brothers' best interest to go for, you know, maybe guys like Ryan Coogler or Antoine Fuqua, John Singleton, some, you know, somebody who who can tell us story from the, you know from their experience as a black person growing up rather than just more white people telling a story written by a white guy about black you know about Africa i mean maybe even get direct directors out of you know out of that area of africa i mean i mean across the, i mean you, you could probably go across the continent uh from the congo cuz the congo is probably is more central and western africa you, but but further east, you've got Nigeria and Nollywood, and because in Lagos and in Nigeria is the main capital of filmmaking in Africa, and you could get a, a couple of decent guys out of that area, or a couple of decent writers and directors out of there. I mean, I feel like that you know somebody who's more conscious to those issues would take that effort and be like, you know, and be like, oh, let's have this per and say, okay, let's step back and have, you know, somebody else tell the story. Somebody who's more familiar, you know, somebody from that area. You know, somebody who grew up with that, who's not, you know, inside Hollywood, let's say. But I've always, <laughs> I'm, I've always had the idea of like, whenever I hear stories in either like, when I'm listening to BBC News or when I'm hearing about history of events that have gone on in Europe or in Asia or in Africa, I always like to think of, oh, we should, somebody should do a movie about that. But then I want, I don't want like 
Hollywood people to do it. I want to, I would want to produce the movie over there and then release it wide and release it wide. I know that's not how filmmaking works, but it's, it's this ideal I've always had in the back of my head. Anyway, I'm getting completely off topic because that's the issue with Tarzan is the character is a relic of this period where, you know, writers didn't think about the, you know, their, you know, characters of color uh, other than oh, these savages, you know, you know, depicting them as like, you know, subhuman almost. And while this movie does its best to modernize it, it's still within that mindset. And ultimately, it's still not all, I mean, it's not the best movie. I mean, there's issues with the green screen effects and some of the CGI could have been held on a little bit, you know, could have been rendered for a couple more months again. That, that seems to be an issue now. I've been noticing more and more is they want to rush these movies out before the CGI is fully rendered and it looks a lot better. And yeah, the, if you compare this movie to Disney's The Jungle Book remake that they just did, Weta did an amazing job animating those animals to look almost lifelike. Most of the animals look completely lifelike, except for some of the more cartoony ones like Baloo and like uh, King Louie. And then the elephants were more noticeably CGI than the other animals. But for the most part... What Weta did with the Jungle Book is leagues better than what whoever than whoever did the CGI for this Tarzan movie. It is noticeably, it is noticeably better in Jungle Book, and uh, and uh, the actors, other than Samuel L. Jackson, they're not all that you know commendable. I mean, Alexander Stars Alexander Skarsgård is kind of the stoic hero type. So I mean, he's play he looks the part of Tarzan, and when he finally yells it's okay. Like it's not like you know, pray you know, it's not like praiseworthy, but he does a good job. Margot Robbie does her best to try and play a more active role for Jane Foster than just damsel in distress, but at the same time, she is still just a damsel in distress ultimately. And while she does try to play a more active role in things, she can't, she's still that, you know, that, you know, she doesn't ultimately save her. Like, it would have been one thing if Jane fully saved herself. Because, I mean, she makes escape attempts, but, like, if Tarzan came there, came there and found out Jane was gone, that would have been something, you know? Then Jane, that Jane could save herself rather than needing Tarzan to save her. But that's my, you know, that's, that's an issue that's been as old as storytelling because it's easy to do the, you know, saving the princess sort of, you know, story, storytelling. That's way easier than trying to go outside of that and make things more dynamic and realistic. And, I'll say it. I'm going to say it. Christoph Waltz and Jimon Hansu are completely wasted in this. J Christoph Waltz is kind of like just going through the paces. I mean, compared, 
like Spectre, he wasn't as great as he was in. Because I mean, the problem is with Christoph Waltz is he peaked in Inglorious Bastards. He played such a just amazing and charismatic villain that Spectre, he was, I liked him in Spectre more than a lot of people did, but I could tell in Spectre he was not playing as well-written of a villain as he was in Inglorious Bastards. And here he's playing even less well-written of a villain. It, it, like, it seems like he's just kind of in a rut of playing these vaguely European, you know, uh, Germanic villain stereotypes rather than, you know, rather than just playing, like, if you compare, like, the two best performances I've seen from him are Inglorious Bastards as Hans Lander, the Jew hunter, and in and in uh, Roman Polanski's adaptation of the play Carnage, where he plays this upper-middle-class pe- father who along with Jodie Foster, Kate Winslet, I believe, and John C. Riley, are kind of meeting together to discuss their two sons who had gotten into a fight at school. And it, as, alco- as they all start to imbibe alcohol and sort of discuss, they, they, their egos start butting heads and it turns into like... All the all of you know all four of them fighting with each other and it's a great story and I really liked the movie even though it just kind of almost ends because it, the play didn't have like a traditional three act structure so the movie tries to pin something on at the end to make it more movie like but any you know all the stuff that was taken from the play is all phenomenal and Crystal Waltz and Kate Winslet and and Jodie Foster and John C Riley are all amazing but yeah compared to those two movies like everything i've seen with him lately has just been eh like just forgettable like i I don't think anybody's gonna remember this movie or and especially not christoph waltz from it and i feel bad for jaman hansu because most people are probably gonna remember him from blood diamond where Another white savior, Leonardo DiCaprio, has to tell the world about the horrors of, you know, the diamond mining practices in Africa. You know, because, God forbid, Jamon Hansu be the ones to tell the world this story. It has to be Leo DiCaprio. Like, you know, that's, that's why IGN brought it up for this review, for their review of this. And... He was phenomenal, and Jaman Hansu was phenomenal in Blood Diamond, even if the movie was just kind of okay. Like, the movie is decent, like, I I feel like it's kind of overplaying the drama, uh, because there's more realistic drama that you could tell about the, 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 you know, the diamond mining practices in Africa, but, you know, Blood Diamond was not the, the right story to tell, per se, but... Jaman Hansu was phenomenal in that. And unfortunately, everything he's been in has kind of been a waste for him. Like, Guardians of the Galaxy, he was just kind of a forgettable bad guy. Where is he? Come on. God, he shows up the first minutes of the movie. I need to be... Makes you have to go to the frickin'... Anyway, um... Apparently he was in Gladiator and the Island. But yeah, uh, 
Blood Diamond is probably where people know him best. He had a role as one of the people, you know, he was the one who was hunting Star-Lord at the beginning of Guardians of the Galaxy, but like Apparently he was in Furious 7, Seventh Son. He played a voice in How to Train Your Dragon 2. He was in a oh, he was Caliban in a interpretation of The Tempest and he got to play T'Challa in a TV miniseries of I'm guessing animated miniseries of Black Panther. Huh. But yeah, I mean, the guy's a working actor. He's in all kinds of stuff. He's in Aragon. <laughs> Aragon, Constantine, Beauty Shop, Lorecroft, Cradle of Life. So, I mean, I played one episode of the Wild Thornberries. So that tells you, you know, the you know the, the different roles that he's played but i feel like he deserves better cuz he's such an amazing you, know, you like with Christoph Waltz you see him you see Jamon Hansu and Blood Diamond and you're like oh my god that guy's going to be amazing what's next and then it's like oh he's uh in oh he played a voice in Black Panther and he was in Aragon and Part kind of in Guardians of the Galaxy, and in Seventh Son, and Furious Seven, and now Legend of Tarzan. So, you, like, you see what I'm saying? I feel like a much better, like, there was probably a, like, I feel like there could have been a draft of the story that included more of his character and made him a more compelling villain that had a much better arc as it went along. Because, you know, by the time he has his confrontation with Tarzan. It's kind. It just kind of the story just kind of goes past, and then he's completely forgotten. And I feel like Jamon Hansu deserves better than that because he, he is an amazing actor. And I'm like, why? Why is this guy not getting better roles? What? What? Why? What is it the name? Is it the weird name? Because I mean, people are because I feel like you get Chuatel Ejiofor and you know all these different guys who have more exotic names let's say, but, like, who have, you know, you get actors who are, you get actors like that, like that in Idris Elba, and, and I feel like, why is Jaman Hansu not on more people's radar? Why is he kind of relegated to these cheesy movie, you know, cheesy popcorny movies, whereas Idris Elba's playing, like, Luther, Chihuahua Four gets, uh, Twitchell Edge of Fours and Twelve Years a Slave and David Oyelowo gets to play Martin Luther King and Jamon Hansu is just kind of nowhere. I mean, I I'm just kind of a, I'm just disappointed that that they, they, there's this um, you know that there's these talents that are going untapped. You know, like. Christoph Waltz could be a much better villain, and Jamon Hansu is so deserves so much better roles, and and ultimately, Legend of Tarzan is pretty forgettable. I liked it only because it kind of gave me that connection to my grandfather. It was like a, it was like something I could watch with him in mind, so so that it's like we're watching it together, you know. It's like a spiritual experience, if no, you know nothing else. But other than that, I mean, it's, I mean, it's not great. But then that's that's probably the original story. It's it's a pulp story. It's 
it's, it was not meant to be taken very seriously. Maybe that's why nobody really thought about the implications of the character being a British nobleman in you know who is able to who's able to have sway over the wilds of Africa. But no, oh well. If you want to see it, I say check it out. But just keep that in mind. It's not. It's it's a great adaptation of the original story, including all the flaws that come with it. Why did you take me? Because I hears your lonely heart. I was hearing all the secret whisperings of the world. You have a little pet. <laughs> Next up, for the first time ever, Steven Spielberg collaborates with Disney. How did that take this long? I mean, I know Spielberg loves to tell more compelling and, like, interesting stories. Like, you wouldn't see, eat, you know, Disney release E.T. Because, although, I mean, that's the thing. There was a point in the 80s where Disney did try to go a bit darker. That's where they had stuff like the Black Cauldron and Something Wicked This Way Comes and a whole bunch of darker stories that unfortunately didn't make, that are, that are like beloved by certain audiences, but never really made them any money until, you know, they, until they went back to their roots with princesses and stuff in the 90s. And for the first time, and somehow it took until now for Steven's, well, I guess because Spielberg has been a major uh, producer behind the scenes with DreamWorks and that would make them competition. But I don't know, at this point, why bother considering the other studios competition? You're better off just making the deals and making the money. You're better off collaborating and making more money than trying to think of each other as, oh, we have to do better than them. They are the enemy. I don't know. Anyway, their first collaboration is an adaptation of a Roald Dahl book, the BFG. And I'll admit I had never read the book. I never read any of Roald Dahl's book. Most, I also never read uh, that one. Ah, oh, crap, what was it? The... Chuck Jones did an animated version of that, too. Um, mm, the Phantom Tollbooth. Uh, I feel like my my peers in school were reading those books, and I never got to them for some reason. I was always reading. I was, You know what the problem was? I was reading nonfiction stuff. I was reading stuff about dinosaurs. And I wasn't reading fiction. I didn't really get into fiction for the most part. It took me until I was an adult to finish the Harry Potter series. I got to the third book and then I stopped reading them because I was more interested in the nonfiction than the fiction. Ah, uh, God, I was that nerd. Anyway, I do remember seeing bits and pieces of an animated adaptation of the BFG, specifically the scene where uh, BFG is in the castle meeting the Queen of England. That's the scene I remember the most. So I, that's... 
my kind of going in, that's my, le- you know, level of knowledge going into this movie. And I will say, the role, the book is probably a little bit better because they're able to expand on a few more things. But I did like the movie. The movie is pretty good on its own. I mean, basically what happens is there's a little orphan in, in, in I believe, London, and she notices, because she has insomnia and is up at 3 o'clock in the morning, she notices this hooded figure in the night and this, like, two-story tall hooded figure. And he kidnaps her to prevent her from going off and telling people about his existence because he is a secret, you know, he's a giant and he's trying to live in secret. And they, the two of them become friends as, as it's revealed that he is the smallest giant of these 10 giants, I believe, because there are nine brothers and he is a vegetarian. He doesn't eat people. He learn. He knows how to read. He and he decided to try and benefit society while his brethren were busy being stereotypical giants who go around grabbing up people and chomping on them and roughhousing and being you know big doofuses. The BFG goes around instead. Collecting dreams from magi- from this magic du- magical dimension, from what I could gather, and releasing them to the people of England, because I don't think he goes anywhere else. And as the story goes on, it turns into the two of them, uh, Sophie and BFG, coming up with a plan to get rid of the other nine giants to prevent them from eating any more people, and. That's the thing about Roald Dahl. He was, he was kind of like a modern-day story, uh, fairy tale storyteller and fairy tale writer. And, and like the older fairy tales with the guys like Grit, you know, the Brothers Grimm and Hans Christian Andersen, he was always dark. He never was afraid to go too dark. And that's why Charlie and the Chocolate Factory featured these kids who would get in trouble for being selfish in their own way, and with... Oh, God, what all did he do? He did the... Wi- I remember he did the witches. They got it adapted into this thing where you had a little stop-motion mouse, and it was all a lot of POV angles. And... Ah, oh God. I'm trying to... Because that's the thing. Everybody remembers uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, mostly because of the very loose adaptation done with Gene Wilder, Willy Wonka, and the Chocolate Factory. That was that was more whimsical and had less to do with the original Doll book. But I feel like that's what people remember the most. And uh, he's a very prolific writer, but... Uh, oh, um, Matilda is another one that got adapted into a, fair, into a really good movie with by uh, Danny, directed by Danny DeVito, who played the dad in it. And, yeah, Matilda's... A, it was I don't know how the book compares, but that movie is a really good, like, not afraid to go too dark kids movie. You know, like it's a it's a kids movie that, you know, shows that there is some 
darkness and edginess into the world, but that you can overcome it. And I feel like those are the really best kid stories. Like, like a lot of what Don Bluth did in the 80s and uh, stuff like what Laika has been doing recently with stuff like Paranorman and Coraline. You know, stuff that's kids movies that aren't afraid to tackle subjects that most kids' movies don't because they, you know, it's, you got to be happy and silly and go shiny colors and do fart jokes and musical numbers. And I feel like, and unfortunately, being the uncle to two nephews with ADD, that's the kind of stuff that they go for more than the kind of stuff that I prefer. <laughs> so, what are you going to do? Anyway, BFG is a very, you know, it's, I won't say it's the best Spielberg's done in a while. Uh, poor Spielberg's been in a bit of a rut because a lot, he, like, he hasn't had an amazing, like, just knock people out of the water hit. Like, I remember reading about BFG and his first collaboration with Disney in an article, and he was talking about how he's disappointed that Lincoln didn't get more praise. But I'm going to say it. Lincoln was not that great of a movie. Like, compare, like if you, like... Spielberg kind of peaked in the 90s. A lot of talk of people at their peaks. But yeah, Spielberg kind of peaked with Schindler's List. And even he was admitting that he wasn't sure if he should make any more movies after Schindler's List because that was, you know, he put so much into that and he wasn't sure if he could, you know, do anything like that again. And I don't think he'd been able to... Because, I mean, after that, you get Lost World and 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 more personal movies. Like, he did the Munich adaptation. He did, uh, he did the Lincoln. He did Lincoln. He did Amistad. He did these. He tried to tell these different stories. But I feel like nothing's been, like, as amazing as what he, you know, when he started with stuff like E.T. and Raiders of the Lost Ark and Jaws and Duel and all these amazing movies that he helped to make. But look, I pulled up his uh, IMDb and going after Schindler's List, we've got Lost World. Saving Private Ryan would probably be the, the best he did after Schindler's List because you know, in terms of, like, a really great movie, but then you get, like, AI artificial intelligence. Minority Report, which has some cool ideas, but ultimately isn't, like, an amazing movie. The Terminal, Catch Me If You Can, Munich, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, The Adventures of Tintin, War Horse, Bridge of Spies. He's doing a movie about this infamous incident uh, in the late 1800s, where a Jewish boy was secretly baptized and kidnapped by the Vatican, called the kidnapping of Edgardo Mortara. I think he was an Italian Jewish kid, and uh, one of the servants was a Catholic and baptized him. And then the Vatican kidnapped him, and it was this, and it was like the first like real knock to the Vatican's power hold in Italy, showing that wow, these people are completely out of touch. And it's kind of like the, the you know, like that, that starting to collapse, like the first time people stopped holding the Vatican as high, as an, as an, in as high a regard 
as they used to. And he's going to do Ready Player One too, but like as a director, he's kind, he's bet, like he hasn't really, like he did kind of peek at Schindler's list looking at it. At the same time, BFG is still a solid kids movie. Like compared to what else is, like compared to stuff like Angry Birds or the upcoming Ice Age movie, like, the BFG is way better than that. I'd rather people go see BFG, but unfortunately it doesn't look because people are still going to see Finding Dory more than anything else. Finding Dory, I think, is still topping the box office. And BFG, I don't think, is bringing in the numbers that they, they need to, to kind of show that this first collaboration was worth it. And... That, that kind of stinks, but at the same time, you can't. You can never tell what people are going to go for. Sometimes they are going to go for those really, well, you know, really well-made, like amazing movies. And sometimes they're just going to go for something stupid that they just want to have fun. You know, they're going to go for something. You know, it's good that the Pixar movie is dominating at the box office, and not you know something like the Angry Birds anymore. But at the same time, people don't really like to think about movies. They like to just have something stupid to, to watch and something fun. And that's the state of movies. So I can't really say how the BFG is as an adaptation since I don't know the book. But I will say as far as movies go, it's, a, you know, it's Spielberg and Disney. It's at least, you know, even their middle-of-the-road middle quality is better than half of Hollywood's best. So, hey, <laughs> you know, kind of faint praise, but if you're familiar with the movie, if, if you remember the book, if you if you love the book, and if you even remember that animated one, I think Chuck Jones did it. In fact, I should look that up. Brian Cosgrove from Danger Mouse, done for A&D. Weird. Anyway, so it wasn't Chuck Jones, but it, yeah, that animated version of the BFG. If you're familiar, you know, if you if you dig that story and if you want a solid kids movie to go see, BFG won't let you down. To keep my country great. Last up, the latest installment of Blumhouse's biggest franchise, it seems, The Purge. Because each movie has been getting bigger than the last. First up was this interesting little indie idea of the government sanctioning murder, essentially, because that's the only crime they ever focus on. I could do an entire episode about my issues with the with the logical reality of the of the purge universe, but anyway, they started on like a little. It starts out as a first as a home invasion movie, then it turns into like this 
warriors wannabe with the second one. And now it's going into complete and, and complete political satire, I guess, for lack of a better word. Completely tapping into the current state of American politics. This time around, we have a female senator running for president against the American Nazi Party called the New Founding Fathers. And yeah, the Nazi correlations are rampant in this movie, as well as uh, commentary on conservative religious politics. And they they decide to take um, make use of the purge to get rid of their competition, this upstart senator, who's just like a combat like this like this mishmash of Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton in that she is a female senator who is standing up to this very, like, all, almost alt-right uh, government. And Bernie Sanders more in the sense that she, you know, the, the upstart populist uh, candidate who's coming out of, coming coming in from behind, so to speak. And as the and Frank, the only real returning actor is Frank Grillo, who is reprising his role from the last movie as I guess a police sergeant. He's referred to as sergeant, so I don't know if they mean military or police, but he is the head of security for the senator. And after being betrayed, they go out on the run and team up with the um, patron, well, the owner and worker and a patron of this deli in D.C. who are a a Hispanic actor and and a black male, the owner, and a black woman who works as a, like a (laughs) underground EMT who goes about helping people who are hurting the purge and taking them to an underground triage center. The stuff they do with this world is, is... it's, it's crazy to th- anyway. Um, so Frank Grillo team Frank Grillo and the senator team up with these three with these other three, and they meet up with this new leader of the of the resistance army, so to speak, the ones who are trying to undermine the NFFA, the New Founding Fathers of America, from the last movie, and it's. It, it's a. I'm trying to like. I'm trying to think of how to describe it without giving a whole lot away because it. A lot of it has to do with the kind of you know the, the the new founding father. It's more about the new founding fathers and how they are essentially on the American Nazi Party and the way they dress, especially towards the end, and the way they dress and the way they act, and and it's about like you know the it's like it's. It was almost a. This was almost the perfect movie to define American politics and the and like the state of it in 2016, because you've it, you know the purge represents the anger that the American people really feel at at all the issues that they're going on with the country, and you see it a hell of a lot more now you know once you, now that there's be, now there's a more multicultural cast like you get you know 
you get all, I love the fact that it's not just all white people like it's been for the last two movies. Like, the last movie had a couple more, at, you know, you know, people of color in the cast, but it was mostly about, well, I mean, well, there was the woman and her daughter from the last movie, and that's about it. And then most of the other characters were all white. Here, the main white characters are Frank Grillo and the senator, and then the new founding fathers. Most of the other cast in DC is people of color, black, Hispanic, a, I think some Asian, and then there's also, but then like most of the people purging are white. And I think that's definitely, you know, commentary on where we are now because a lot of that anger and vitriol is at lower, is from lower and lower middle class white guy, working class white guys who got the short, short end of the stick in the different, in the, in, when the United States became part of globalization. And, and there hasn't been a real push to help them out. And they are pissed. And that kind of anger fuels what started the purge. Because this is supposed to take place like 20 years in the future, and yet it looks like present day. They did nothing to make it look like we've advanced. Because that's the thing. Now, when you try to predict the future, and if it's the, if it's unless it's like one or two years, even if it's like one or two years in the future, you need to have a few things that are improved because technology, especially now, moves at such an astronomically fast pace that to try and play things off, like well, when I was watching the last movie in preparation for seeing the third one, I like the oh, the first thing you see is cash that was made that was printed in like. The 50s or the 60s, you know, like 20th century printed cash. And you know, it's supposed to be like 10 years in the future in that one. So, you know what I'm saying? So, like, it's trying to be all futuristic, but they, they don't do anything to make it look more futuristic. Everything is still... It's like the purge helped out somehow with the economy and the mur and the crime rate. But... It didn't help improve technology, I guess. I, that's, you know, that, like I said, I could go to a whole episode about my issues with the, 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 the reality, you know, how the Purge universe works. And so, yeah, if you stop to think about it, the movie doesn't make any sense. But the, the series and the universe never made any sense. This, the way I described it when I first came out of it was if you remember 80s and especially well going back to like the 50s and 60s even big exploitation movies like the original Mad Max series or like the trauma films or you know that that sort of movie that isn't you know that isn't afraid to go like balls out crazy that's kind of what the, where we at with the purge now last movie it was like gang, like gangs in clown masks for them and hoodies. Here it's like full on neon Lady Liberty and Uncle Sam killing people and neo Nazi groups and the Crips show up for a portion of the movie. And it's, I mean, it, it like the story is simplistic and in the universe doesn't make any sense. It's 
all it's all about the presentation here. And for the first time in this series, I'm at the point where like, holy cow, like I'm seeing like horror, all these different, like they tried it. The only thing they didn't do for this movie was throw in references to making America great again. Unless I missed it, that was the only thing that was missing. But like so much of the like of this movie captures exactly the mentality and the feelings that people have during this election cycle and that's brilliant on their part like that was the perfect move that's how you make this movie memorable i just i'm I, I should have checked the box office all right Looking at the weekend, uh, Finding Dory topped it again. Total gross was 372. I guess that's domestic. Legend of Tarzan premiered under that at 38. Ugh, not great. And then The Purge under that at 31. So it looks, so the three new ones managed to creep in behind Finding Dory, although they're although it drops dramatically from Purge's 31 to BFG at 18. Oof. Feel sorry for BFG. So yeah, the purge just looks like it. I think it made its money back because that's the thing about Blumhouse is it's. I don't think they. I don't think they go over twenty million a movie. So if you estimate that it's like twenty million a movie for any Blumhouse production, multiply that by two for advertising budgets, then it almost made its money back in the first weekend. And I'm guessing Purge Election Year is going to go down as one of those movies where the average moviegoer is like, oh my god, this was 2016 in a nutshell. And they aren't too far off. So good on the filmmakers for capturing that, even if their universe still doesn't make any sense, and even if the notion of the whole thing is complete and utter nonsense. But hey, if you're going to go nonsense, go full nonsense. Don't try to be smart with your nonsense. So yeah, that about does it for this week's reviews. Tune in after the break for a discussion on old books that deserve either their own or newer movie adaptations. Alrighty, in honor of the Tarzan adaptation this week, I decided to try and look back through the books of yesteryear through Goodreads.com. And I went by their decades chart, and I started with 1930s and went backwards. Tried to, you know, tried to find stuff that is, you know, from that time period and earlier. So, from what I could find... Because that's the thing. If you look back through a lot of that stuff, it's stuff that's been adapted a lot, that a lot of stuff. Like Edgar Rice Burroughs and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the Bronte sisters, um, H.G. Uh, Wells' stuff would come up. And I was trying to find stuff that was a lot more obscure. Stuff that 
you either haven't heard of or it's been a while since the last adaptation of it. And the first one that I pulled up was All Quiet on the Western Front. And that's one that they that was a perfect movie to kind of sum up the World War One experience. And I feel like that's such an amazing story that I every generation should have a version of that. Not necessarily like a re, you know a remake of that specific story, but to tell that story with the current war. Like there should you know like how there's so many Vietnam War movies that kind of exemplified people's sentiments of the of that era. I feel like every generation, because war is continuous and you're never going to stop war, but I feel like that's all quiet on the Western Front is such an amazing story in and of itself that you could adapt that to just about any wartime and interpret it in any kind of way. Like you could interpret that to any culture almost then and depict that sort of story. And I feel like that, that should be something to do, you know, like, I feel like that's something we could use uh, in this time, in, in this day and age. And I feel like they would be, a, you know, would be a, you know whoever the writer and the studio is that tackles that again. Because I, I know they did, like, a TV miniseries remake of it, but I feel like that, you know, that's something you should put a lot of effort in. But that's just me. Um, the one guy that keep that... After, because that's the thing with this list, it's going to be a lot of authors more than just stories. And the first author that I that I came across with a bunch of works that I thought, oh my god, why aren't we doing this? Is Franz Kafka. And if for those who don't know, Kafka is the writer behind Metamorphosis, and Metamorphosis in literary circles is the story of this guy who was turned into a cockroach. And in turning into a cockroach, it's about how his family, it's about how his life goes into complete and an utter downward spiral and how his family contemplates killing him to put him out of his misery. Metamorphosis is a dark, like metamorphosis is kind of the definition of Kafka-esque, where it's absurd and depressing at the same time. And I feel like, because, I mean, Orson Welles adapted The Trial into a movie in the 30s or 40s. And After Hours took a lot of inspiration from from Kafka's The Trial. But I feel like we could, if, if you could get a guy like David Lynch or David Cronenberg to adapt a lot of the more, like, to their, do their adaptation of metamorphosis that would be i feel like although i guess cronenberg's remake of the fly kind of may have taken some inspiration from metamorphosis i haven't seen it but just he has had such crazy different stories uh but he's best known for metamorphosis and the the trial which are the ones that get the most telling and the most like real um, what do you call it, like, notoriety, but there was this one that came up called America, also known as The Man Who Disappeared, incomplete first novel, ooh, all right, Bizarre Wanderings of 16-Year-Old European Immigrant, 
Carl Rossman, Rossman, forced to go to New York to escape the scandal of his seduction by a housemaid. As the ship arrives in the USA, he becomes friends with a stoker who is about to be dismissed from his job. Jacob is his uncle, but Mr. Jacob recognizes him and takes him away from the stoker. One day he sees the theater of Oklahoma, which is looking for employees. The theater promises... And adopts the name Negro as his own. Okay, then. I guess that was the one that caught my eye because I was like, okay, here's this. He's, I believe, Czech, uh, of Czech descent. But here's his interpretation of America. But apparently, it's not complete. It's not a complete story. So it would be like adapting somebody. It would only be like adapting a part of a story instead of the whole thing. But Metamorphosis, The Trial, some mm, a country doctor, the Great Wall of China. I, 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 one of those. God, I need to take some time out and just read. Because I haven't read any doll. I need to go read Phantom Tollbooth. And then there's all kinds of stuff I just haven't seen that I need to take time. I feel like I almost need a list to say, like, okay. And then just be like, okay. Every day, do at least something. You know, read a couple chapters of this book. Or read a couple or watch this movie instead of screwing around doing God knows what. Anyway. I, anyway, I just feel like... Kafka is one of those writers that that more people should get exposed to just to be like, holy crap, what was that? And I feel like in this day and age of the internet where so much insanity runs rampant on Twitter and on especially like deeper web sites that than Facebook and Twitter and the main social media, stuff like 4chan and Reddit and stuff and like Imgur where People are allowed to just go bananas. Kafka would Kafka would be like the perfect guy to kind of bring to that audience. Uh, after that is a guy I never I hear about. I hear people talk about, but I've never seen like a big screen adaptation for, and that's Hercule Poirot. Poirot, Poirot, I I am terrible at. I French was not was the one language that I suffered at when I went through diction in college. Because as a music major, I took a diction course. And Italian? Per- perfect. No problem. Spanish? Easy. Uh, German? That came, that came almost second nature. French? It's like my tongue would get in the way. And at any rate, uh, Hercule Poirot is the creation of Agatha Christie, I believe. And he's like that second, he's like the second to Sherlock Holmes in notable detectives. And I feel like Poirot never really got his due. And he was always outshine. like everybody knows Sherlock Holmes. Sherlock Holmes is beloved by the world over. And I feel like Poirot gets like a, gets like an also ran and deserves like his, his own major film series the same way there's been like several different interpretations of Shakespeare. Why isn't there more stuff with Poirot? I, I don't know. So I feel like there's a guy that there should be more exposure for in this day and age. And 
I don't know. Maybe you know. Maybe where's the plot? That's the, that's the great thing about um, uh, subscribing to the omniverse theory. I believe the theory that every action taken creates its own universe. Like there are, there's an infinite number of universes out there for every, you know, every every decision made in the history of the universe. And, you know, kind of like the multiverse theory from the con- how there's like all these different interpretations of the DC and Marvel universes. I, f- I love that idea. And I love and I'm, I'm, I like to think that they're out there somewhere is a universe in which instead of sh- instead of people knowing who Sherlock Holmes is, Poirot is the one that gets like the. CV, CBS TV series and the series on the BBC and the beloved series on the BBC and the movie starring uh, maybe not Robert Downey Jr. but like Rob Lowe or you know, someone, somebody else from the Brat Pack as Poirot in the American film series directed by some other British filmmaker. <laughs> uh, that That's great. That's what I love thinking. I love... I would love to just sit down and think of the infinite number of universes that are out there. That somewhere out there, there's a universe that X happens, where X exists. Uh, anyway, after that was something that is I've only seen adapted once. I it probably has other adaptations, but the main, but it's this, it's a a follow up to. The Frankenstein, because this is it was published in 1914, and Frankenstein was like a hundred years prior to that, I believe, or 50 years maybe. But it's like this this uh, companion piece to Frankenstein called the Golem or Der Golem from a uh, it's a German it's a German work uh, by Gustav Meyrink, and it's it's like a Jewish Frankenstein story, and the idea is. That it takes place in Prague, and the Jewish—I don't know if it was officially a ghetto, but like the Jewish neighborhood—and a jeweler, somebody sets up the golem, uh, and basically the golem is the Frankenstein monster, and it's a giant clay um, statue. And what you do is you drop written commands into the golem and the, during the night the golem goes out and does your bidding and then it's that and so um and so the okay while connected to the legend of rabbi judah lo ben bezalel golem is cast as sort of a gestalt entity physical manifestation of the ghetto's inhabitants collective psyche and as well as the ghetto's own self so yeah basically the golem the book by gustav Meyrink is like a jewish version of Frankenstein where it's about where it's specifically about the treatment of the Jews in Prague during this time period like pre-World War 1 and how that kind and how that manifested into this creature and I love the story but it's the biggest the main adaptation of it was a silent movie Film has been lost. Film in 1917 has been lost. And there's a third movie that managed to survive. But yeah, I mean, they're all directed by the same guys. Poor guy directed the movie 
Oh, those are adapted from the original Golem legend. Okay, so this is like a version of a Jewish myth of the Golem. But yeah, I feel like there's some that's like that would make for an amazing Jewish monster movie. Like there's this like the idea that there are these guys that there are these guys who fight back against anti-Semitism through this golem, only for them to realize they are, they are just as monstrous as the people that they turned this creature into a monster for their own purposes. Like that's such an amazing story that I feel like why why isn't anybody telling this? Where 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 are the adaptations of this? I mean, something like something for it's something even just generic and stupid for Sci-Fi Channel. You know, Sci-Fi Channel does all these stupid like ice tarantulas and lava snakes and Lake Placid versus Anaconda. Yet nobody is trying to at- adapt the Golem. Uh, yeah, see, that's what I'm. That's what I'm. That's what I've been complaining about mainly this whole episode is that all these things. There's so many things, but nope. People are like completely forgetting. Anyway, after that is the classic British little story, "The Wind in the Willows," which most people will remember from the Disney short with Mister Toad, and. That's about it, I think, because there's Mr. Toad's Wild Ride, and that was like 20 minutes, and then I remember Nostalgia Critic mentioning a live-action version with, like, Eric Idle in it, but I feel like The Wind of the Willows, with so many stories being adapted nowadays, why isn't Disney doing a full-on feature-length adaptation of Wind of the Willows? Or why isn't somebody doing, like, uh stop-motion version of The Wind in the Willows or something, you know, or a CG version, or somebody or somebody trying to do it for television. Why, why aren't more people trying to tell this story? Is the story that good? I mean, because, I mean, it's been adapted all these different times, and yet lately it seems to have been completely forgotten. So I don't... Uh, there's another book that I should probably read, because maybe the original story is not all that good. Maybe there's not much to it. Maybe there's not much to say. But... I don't know, but it feels like there's something like that's that just that you know because there's all this with all this all the time all the stuff we're mining from recent pop culture. There's that's why I went back to these books because the these books are are almost a hundred years old, if not older, and nobody's talking about them. Nobody's doing anything with them. It's like, what, what, come on. Uh, next one was something I feel like would be ripe for a good film adaptation that I don't think ever got one. Upton Sinclair's The Jungle. And for those who don't know that one, it is a... It is Upton Sinclair writing a novel because he wasn't able to publish uh, his investigation of the meatpacking industry in Chicago. And so, since he couldn't, so so because he couldn't publish the story in the papers, he published it as a book, and it was the first, and and it was the first time that 
you know, the government came to investigate the practices of these big businesses. And it was all because of this one guy. So either Upton, how Upton Sinclair investigated the story, maybe an adaptation of the story itself, because it is a fictional version. But, like, why? There's like a 1914 version that became lost to history. And a musical adaptation from the team behind Guns of Ireland is in development and slated for 2018. How has nobody, not during like the 60s, when the when there was stuff, uh, when you got stuff like Norma Ray coming out, how come, how come Upton Sinclair's The Jungle never got that that Hollywood treatment? You'd think it would be ripe for that sort of storytelling, because it's like the you know it's the little guy bringing down the big business and exposing corruption to the masses and. Uh, oh, it's just so much potential there that nobody's, nobody, it's like people just completely forget. It's like, oh, nobody wants to read that smarty pants book. They want, you know, easy to digest garbage. Yeah. Anyway, uh, following that is something I never heard of, but it's called The Wood Beyond the World, or just Wood Beyond the World. Something. It is a precursor to the fantasy works of guys like C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien. And it tells the story of a guy who journeys past... Let's see. When the wife of Golden Water betrays him for another man, he leaves home on a trading voyage to avoid the necessity of a feud with her family. However, his efforts are fruitless as word comes to him en route that his wife's clan has killed his father. As a storm then carries into a faraway country, the effect of this news is merely to sunder his last ties to his homeland. Walter comes to the castle of an enchantress, from which he rescues a captive maiden in a harrowing adventure, or rather, she rescues him. They flee through a region inhabited by many giants and eventually reach the city of Starkwall, whose custom, when the throne is vacant, is to take the next foreigner to arrive as ruler. The late king having died, Walter and his new love are hailed as the new monarchs. The two are married and presumably live happily ever after. That apparently went on to inspire the likes of C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien and sort of created and sort of helped to foster this modern interpretation of medieval fantasy. And yet, nope. And it's like with, um... I wanted to do this, uh because I had a series where instead of top 10 lists, it'd be top seven lists. And the idea was the top seven young adult stories that should be adapted. And one of those was the Chronicles of Pridang, which I had never heard of. And partly because of the failure of Disney adapting their first two books. Uh, I forget what the first book is called, but uh, the second book is The Black Cauldron. So Disney tried to adapt it, and apparently they do have it on their books for a live-action remake. So hopefully that is in the works. But more, but apparently that was like a great introduction to fantasy for a lot of younger readers. But like nobody's ever talks about it. It's like there's these. It's like somehow these stories slip through the cracks. So like I don't know. 
I don't know how you'd adapt it. Like, I don't know if you'd go with the original title that would be on the world or beyond, maybe go with like Beyond the Woods or something. Uh, um, not into the woods, I guess. I don't know, but like that idea that a guy is escaping his mundane life and going into a fantasy life. And it's about how this he you know it's like an up like as the if the plot is as accurate to the book the apparently the maiden is the one helping him out so it's like you've got a great care you know strong feminine character to kind of offset the idea of the damsel in distress and then you've got like you know the the you could always go with the idea that is this guy dreaming or is this guy dead or is this guy you know something like that. And so there's, like, so many things you could do with that, and yet nothing. Absolutely nothing. Oh, God, come on. After that, one guy came up named Robert W. Chambers. And I don't... And I, I must have gone through the actual stories. H.P. Lovecraft said of Chambers in a letter... Chambers is like Rupert Hughes and a few other fallen titans, equipped with the right brains and education, but wholly out of the habit of using them. Hmm. Oh, that's what it was. Um, it was the idea... Rob, I used it because it uh, there's a collection of short stories, starting with this one called The King in Yellow. Play in book form entitled King in Yellow, mysterious and malevolent supernatural entity known as The King in Yellow, eerie symbol called The Yellow Sign. Three, these stories are, are macabre in tone, centering and keeping with the other tales, artists, or decadence. First and fourth stories set in the imagined future in the 1920s, or the second and third stories are set in Paris. The stories, have you found the yellow sign? That's what it was. It was the idea that this author kind of set the tone for guys like H.P. Lovecraft, and he was a horror writer. And... And like so, like this guy helped to inspire guys like like H.P. Lovecraft. Why haven't we been tech? Because this stuff is technically in the public domain. Most of it is prior to I believe it's nineteen twenty seven. It's the stuff that's currently in the public domain. But like, why aren't these stories being adapted? Either told as like period pieces or try to adapt them like if they're a good enough story they can be retold in the modern era and like there was a story i'm working I, I was a script i started working on whereas the black dog story from uh scary stories to tell in the dark i think the second one but it was a, taken from an old uh myth an american legend i believe of a ghost dog that haunted the killer of its owner and i been trying to adapt that to make it work for the modern day and be like a, a this ghost story of this couple being haunted by the dog they killed and I, like so, see that's my thing is like any story can be reinterpreted as long as you stay true to the main plot so the setting and the characters can change but as long as the plot is consistent you can tell just about any story in any time period so, like, you could do... That's how you get stuff like Sherlock Holmes in the 22nd century, where it's just, like, what... Just throw stuff out there, like, future Sherlock Holmes with Robo Watson. 
Uh, but that that's that should be the thing. You should be trying to tell these stories, you know. And like that's why I'm, that's why I went back, like going back through this list and seeing the different stuff. But yeah, I mean, so why you know, like maybe I sh- maybe I will like because that's the thing. Um, I would like to say I'm an aspirational screenwriter in the sense that I have great ideas, but I never take the time out to just actually pound out and make a thing. So I think that's that's what I think this episode can kind of help serve as inspiration because a lot of the stuff is public domain. And since nobody else is doing it, this should be the perfect inspiration for me to be like, nobody else is doing it. You know what? Screw you. Screw you guys. I'm going to start my own... I'm going to make my own adaptations of these cool stories with blackjack and hookers. In fact, forget adapting these old stories from the 1910s. Anyway, next guy. Henrik Ibsen. Called the, uh, called the father of realism and one of the founders of modernism in theater. Playwright who... whose stories I feel like never... Have, transcribed to the big screen but it's stories that are like oh holy cow what why aren't there more of this stuff numerous adaptation visions work particularly in film theater notable are torstein bishford's Tirge, two multimedia film and dance pieces presented in yokohama in 2006 citation needed freaking wikipedia is like nonsense anyway Henry Keepson has these, I guess the issue is translating them, because a lot of them are still in, no, I mean, they have English titles, so they must have been translated to English at some point, but these stories are like, like he, his, the main one I recognize, title-wise, is Pyrgint, and that's notable mostly for the uh, composition done for the uh, for an adaptation as a ballet, I believe. Let me pull it up. Pyrgin Festival. Pyrgint? Let me see. Pyrgint. Not gent. Gint. It's like the gif argument all over again. Anyway. Uh, Edvard Grieg. That's what it was. Um, and Edvard Grieg's like, Grieg, his best works, I think, his most memorable works are from this ballet. Incidental music for the play. Oh, no, it's just for production of the play. So this is like, and it's incidental music that that, that uh, Edvard Grieg did for a production of the original Ibsen play. And in the Hall of the Mountain King in Morning Mood. They're like, those seem to have survived past Ibsen's original play. And it's like, holy cow, like, why isn't there a Pyrgint Pyrgint. I think he's used to that. I, I keep wanting to say Gint. Why isn't there, like, a Pyrgint movie? You know, why isn't, why, 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 I mean, all this stuff is in the public domain. Why are we using, why are we trying to tell this movie with the original Greek music behind it? Uh, 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 do you see what I'm saying? 
do you see why I'm getting all flustered? Because there's so many cool stories that, like, nobody is talking about. And it's like, but there's this, there's the thing. And it's like, no, nobody cares. Nobody cares. We got to think of an 80s movie to adapt because more people will recognize that. Well, you know what? Those things wouldn't have got the recognition if it wasn't for either a cool original idea or adapting something that nobody's ever heard of before. Jaws and The Godfather were adapted from two pulp novels from the 70s. And they're considered the best movies ever made. So unless you go find these books that are out there and try to work them into something, you know, you have to work to make something really good. It takes... It takes great writing and understanding of of character of you know reckon of um, not recognizable but of relatable and compelling characters and and solid filmmaking and a hell of a lot of luck honestly to make these amazing movies. People are just going to completely throw, you know, throw them off to the way, you know, like, you know, we can't worry about that thing. Nobody's ever heard of it. Well, you know what? You make them hear of it because nobody's ever heard of the other things, too, until you made them hear of it. And I guess that's my issue is when, like, anything could be good. Anything could be good. You just have to try and make it good. I'm getting off on a tangent. Next guy on the list is another playwright that I feel like gets more notoriety in writing circles, but either his stories haven't been really tackled since he might have had some... I think it was this guy. Uh, if you know, if you've ever heard about writing, you've probably heard of the term Chekhov's gun. Wait, only Shakespeare ranks Chekhov in terms of movie adaptations of their work according to the movie database IMDb. Wait, so are there Chekhov, uh, Chekhov adaptations that I never heard of? A portion of a stage production of Three Sisters appears in Still Alice, but it's not really an adaptation. Sidney Lumet did The Seagull, but... Where's this guy getting his information? There it is. Philosophy approaching the art of acting has stood not only steadfast, but as a cornerstone of acting for much of the 20th century to this day. Mikhail Chekhov considered Ivanov a key moment in his brother's intellectual development and literary career. From this period comes an observation of Chekhov's that has become known as Chekhov's Gun, a dramatic principle that requires that every element in a narrative be necessary and irreplaceable, and everything else be removed. Rem quote, Remove everything that has no relevance to the story. If you say in the first chapter that there is a rifle hanging on the wall, in the second or third chapter it absolutely must go off. If it's not going to be fired, it shouldn't be hanging there. Forgive the bad uh, attempt at a Russian accent, but yeah, Chekhov's gun is a term in writing that, say, that states what I just said. If there's a gun... Hang it. If you point out that there's a gun, that gun better go off by the next in the next act, or there's no point in pointing it out. So yeah, but I don't know where that guy was talking about adaptate all like the most adaptations made other than Shakespeare. 
novellas, nonfiction, films based on the works of Anton Chekhov. This is prolific. Let's see. One, two, three, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen. There's way more adaptations of Shakespeare than that. What about based on the plays? Great. It's 21. No, 17. Because there were 13 there. Films based on Uncle Vanya. Six. So, 11 based on Uncle Vanya and the Three Sisters. Four based on the... Four based on both the Cherry Orchard and the Seagull. And then 13 of other stuff. So that's... 11, 4, 15, plus 13, 30, 28. 28. So, but I don't know what that, what that pompous blowhard was talking about, unless there's other stuff that I'm missing. But yeah, I, there's a, most of the stuff seems to be f- foreign film adaptations, like stuff Il, Il Gabbiano, La Steppa. Or is it La Steppa? Yeah, that must be Italian. La Steppa. La Steppa. Italian adventure film. But yeah, I feel like for a guy as iconic and prolific as Chekhov, you'd think there would be way, way more adaptations. Well, here, let's pull up the IMDb thing. Okay, there we go. 430 credits. That's what we're talking about. Well, I'm guessing that's probably because they include stuff that's not TV. TV, That's TV movie, film short, TV short, a play. Somebody's doing a new interpretation of Uncle Vanya for next year. So, yeah, I guess that's what they're talking about. There's a bunch of stuff done for TV and that are done in his film shorts. So, I guess he's out there, but, like, there's no, there's no, like, mainstream. Like, I feel like more people should know of Anton Chekhov and of his influence the same way that they know Shakespeare. Like, this guy was saying, oh, Chekhov is the most prolifically adapted writer other than Shakespeare. But, like, nobody's, like, but, and you, I, don't, I feel like if you ask people about Chekhov, they were like, oh, the guy from Star Trek? You know, like, uh, anyway, guys like that, playwrights and other novelists from the day, Ibsen and Chekhov, a lot of foreign writers, I'm noticing, European writers, guys who I don't think make the same mistakes that Edgar Rice Burroughs and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle make. No strong, but Joseph Conrad. There's another one. Uh, next one is a book by Joseph Conrad, who I feel like gets another, is another one of those guys that should get more adaptations than he does. Because he's best known for the... best known for Heart of Darkness, which itself was adapted into the Vietnam movie uh, Apocalypse Now by uh, Francis Ford Coppola. It took me a second for some reason. Three o'clock in the morning, probably. <laughs> That's probably why. Um, anyway, 
Nostromo is set in the South American country of Costa Guana, and more specifically in that country's Occidental province and the port city of Sulaco. Charles Gould is a native Costa Guanero of English. Okay, shoot. There's the problem. Okay, so yeah, remember during Tarzan where I was talking about the issue of the uh, white savior? Apparently the main characters in this book about a fictional South American country are European guys. English guy and Italian guy. So, huh. Well, shoot. Maybe it's not. But once again... Any story can be adapted and ultimately fixed. Because, yeah, if you read the books for Jaws and The Godfather, you'd be like, how'd you get that amazing movie out of this? And, yeah, and so I think there is something to be found here. And you said it in the fictional South America country. You know, know, base it between Colombia and wherever the idea was for this country to be set within South America, but make it more about the actual, but you know, have it played by actual Hispanic actors and set it like they're South Americans, the same way like the 33 did, and tell the same story of the revolutionaries who overthrow the corrupt government. But yeah, it seems like to be all, it seems like it's all about. You know, you know, an Italian guy named Nostromo, and 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 then the English guy acting like the uh, what do you call? It? What was his name? Um, the main character from Great Gatsby, Nick Carraway. So yeah, this they're like there's an English guy who's basically the Nick Carraway, and sort of like boring boring protagonist and then Nostromo is the Gatsby who was like the you know the main character the more interesting character and then but then they're both a European descent in this fake South American country I don't know maybe I maybe I, that, this is why I should have done more research but it seemed like a cool story when I thought it was just you know a South American story but then I forgot that these guys don't think much of the non-European folk. Anyway, next up on the list, another author, Jack London. And Jack London is a guy who I feel gets the real short end of the stick when it comes to adaptations. Like, the closest we ever got for a real good Jack London adaptation lately was The Grey. And that was based on an original story that had nothing to do with Jack London. But that, he's... Like, Jack London is this guy who was like, epitomizes the idea of man survi- man versus nature. And it's the idea of these guys surviving in the wilderness. And most people know White Fang. That was Jack London. Call of the Wild and White Fang. Those are the big ones. And then... Uh, I don't know if many other people remember this. There was a short story that a lot of, that I know I remember reading from high school called the, "To Build a Fire," and it was a short story about a guy and the struggle to just do the simple thing of building a fire in the winter. 
And I feel like Jack London is this guy, like he's so well known for these stories of the man versus nature that never seemed to get any, you know, any, uh, but what would be the term for any like play, like replay. There's like, people don't really talk about it. Like people are quick to talk about Ernest Hemingway. They love talking about Ernest Hemingway. And yet Jack London is this guy who predates Ernest Hemingway and does all these cool stories about living, you know, surviving the wilderness and living, you know, life on the sea that like almost, that are almost like setups for what Ernest Hemingway would do in the early 20th century. But but Jack London gets like no replay and like his stories go complete. Like I remember, I think Disney tried to do Call of the Wild or White Fang and then they did a sequel, but so much cool stories that this guy has written and yet none of it, none of it gets any replay. Like what, why, what, what's, what, what, what gives, why not? Is it, I mean, the only thing I can guess is because it's, You'd have to go Revenant style and try to film it in the wilderness and film it in, uh, film it in conjunction with nature, and that's that's hard to do. You know, you either try to fake it and it looks like crap, or you, or you just kind of, you know, forget about it. Try to tell more easy to adapt stories. And the last one that I could come up with was a guy I feel like had a lot of, like, he had a great run in the 60s with Vincent Price, and yet nobody seems to have tackled him again. Edgar Allan Poe, great horror writer, f- creator of the, dete- the modern-day detective story, and yet nobody wants to talk about him. They did a really bad story about, like, him trying to, find his wife and be a detective with freaking John Cusack. And it was such a terrible, terrible attempt at a story. Uh, The Raven from 2014 or 10. I forget what year, but it was not, not good. But I feel like you could do like an amazing, like he's so prolific with the kind of macabre, gothic stories that you could tell Today, with stuff like the fall of the House of Usher, or the or the Telltale Heart, yeah, you know, I mean, they did the Black Cat for that uh, horror series on Showtime, I believe, or Cinemax, where they got guys like not really Scott, but um, John Carpenter. John Carpenter was a producer on a bunch of them, and they did the Black Cat for one, but then it's like. Why is it, why isn't anybody trying to do this with how easy it is to make horror movies now and with how much people will eat that kind of scary stuff up you could wipe the floor with all the jump scares and the startles not jump scares they aren't scary they're startles with all the startles that Blumhouse does why isn't Blumhouse or Hammer doing like a new ring of Edgar Allan Poe adaptations it's free it's public domain so why not Go for it. Do do the thing. And that's kind of why, you know what? I should probably, I need to start making a point 
of actually working. If I want to actually be a screenwriter, I need to actually work on it. And a bunch of this stuff is in the public domain. I, it, it, it wouldn't take anything except part, except actual work to try and adapt these and make them into viable screenplays. So you know what? That's something I need to start working on. If not a daily thing, then at least a weekly thing. Do it on the weekend. Take some time off on the weekend and actually work on some of these things. Because these are amazing stories that go completely forgotten. Because nobody talks about it. And it's about damn time somebody talked about it. Anyway, that does it for this week's episode. So it is time for the plugs. If you are listening to Popcorn Junkie, you are most likely listening to us on our home at SoundCloud.com. The home of Popcorn Junkie is SoundCloud.com slash Popcorn Dash Junkie. And if you want to follow us for any new episodes, just follow, just click that follow button on the SoundCloud page and you'll get any of the new episodes as they come out. Or if you're not privy to SoundCloud, you can always find us on the iTunes store. Just search out Popcorn Junkie on the iTunes podcast store and you'll find my orange mug chomping on popcorn. And just subscribe to us on the iTunes store and the SoundCloud feed will go directly to iTunes and you'll get all the new episodes as they come out. And if you really want to help us out, all you got to do is leave a five-star rating and review on the iTunes store page and that will help direct people to the podcast and help grow our audience. And if you leave a five-star rating and review, I will also read it on the show. So... Get to work on spreading the word of the Popcorn Junkie and leave those five-star ratings and reviews. If you want to help the podcast out financially, you can just subscribe to the podcast on Patreon. I am on patreon.com slash popcornjunkie, and there are several tiers of rewards for any kind of patrons from $1 to however dollars you want us donate to help make this podcast grow. And for all the dollars you donate, you help us reach our goals. The main goal for Popcorn Junkie at this point through Patreon is to start a second weekly podcast called Make a Better Movie, wherein I take a look at movies that didn't quite work and talk about how I would help fix them in my own way as either a writer, director, or producer. And if you want a preview of that kind of podcast, listen to episode three, Making a Better Superman, where in the discussion portion, I talk about what I would do to make a better Superman movie. It's a little preview of what would come, but with a full-on series, I would have a lot more time to devote to fixing individual movies rather than trying to tackle a character or franchise. Topics for this series would include the Fantastic Four movies, Age of Ultron, Seventh Son, the Nightmare on Elm Street series, the Texas Chainsaw series, so while I was talking about Superman... So while I was saying it probably won't be as much about franchises as much as individual movies, I will be willing to I would be willing to talk about individual franchises on how I would do one movie if not a franchise if not a series of movies in that franchise. But to make that goal a reality, all you have to do is leave a donation on patreon.com and you will get a reward corresponding to however much you're willing to donate. If you can't help us out financially, you can always follow the podcast on social media. Our social media home is facebook.com slash popcornjunkie, where you get all the updates as well as previews of my thoughts on movies as I am leaving the theater. Just go to facebook.com slash popcornjunkie and like that and click the like page to get all the updates from Popcorn Junkie. Also, I have been starting to make more use of the Twitter 
at Corn Junkie Pod to give my thoughts on the opening trailers to the different show showings I go for each week. So if you want to hear my thoughts on trailer on the trailers before a movie, follow at Corn Junkie Pod on Twitter, and you will also get all of the Facebook feed directly to that Twitter account. The last thing I want to say is if you've got anything else to say about the podcast, any kind of request or critique or praise you want to give the podcast, just send that in an email to popcornjunkiepodcast at gmail.com, and I will be sure to get back to you as soon as possible. And if you also want to... Uh, want you want your message to be heard on the show just make sure just make sure i know that so i can give your shout outs or your critiques to the to the listening audience on the show send those messages to popcorn junkie podcast at gmail.com that does it for this week until next time i'm john bailey and i gotta actually do some work for a change theme song for Popcorn Junkie is is Funky Popcorn by The M. Look up Funky Popcorn by The M on SoundCloud.com for more of his music. Artwork provided by Nafio, N-A-F-Y-O. Look up nafio.deviantart.com for more of his art. Go to the thing. Do the thing, you stupid.